and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mabel van Oranje and I'm one of the founding members of ECFR. This week, I have the honor to host this special anniversary episode and I do so live from the kitchen table in my London home, which is where it all started 15 years ago. On 9th November, ECFR celebrates 15 years since its founding in 2007. 9 November has been a day of loss and joy, marked by both high and low points in history, making this date all but notorious. For example, on this day in 1918, German Emperor Willem II was removed, fled to my home country, the Netherlands, and the German Republic was born. On this day in 1923, in Munich, police and government troops crushed the Nazi Beerhall Putsch, an effort by Adolf Hitler and General Ludendorff to end the Weimar Republic. And during the prison term that followed, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. This day in 1938 is Kristallnacht, the 3098 national program instigated by the Nazis. And then as we all very well know, in 1989 on this day, the Berlin Wall did fall and became the end of the Cold War. East Germany opened the checkpoints in the Berlin Wall allowing its citizens to travel to West Berlin. And then on this day in 2007, ECFR was born in an optimistic moment. 50 founding members felt that the EU could be, combine its values and its resources to become a prototype for a global open society. Now we want to use this day today to think about how the momentous historical events on 9 November can help us to make sense of the current moment of disorder. We will also be looking ahead and explore how ECFR can continue its work to help Europe find a strong voice in the critical times ahead. And I'm very happy to welcome Mark Leonard, the director of ECFR, together with fellow ECFR founding members, Timothy Gardenesh, professor of European studies at Oxford University, and Ivan Krastev, chair of the board of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia. 15 years ago, or alternatively said, nine Italian prime ministers ago, Mark, Timothy, Ivan and I sat here at my kitchen table and we brainstormed and we brainstormed and we then embarked on the unique journey called ECFR. Thank you all very much for joining. Now, Ivan, Mark and Timothy, we know that the fall of the Berlin Wall marked the end of the Cold War and a key moment in security relations on the European continent. In the following three decades, closer integration and globalization characterized the world. Now in 2022, more than 30 years later, we are seeing traces of the closing of that opening. Protectionism in trade, the decoupling between China and the US and the international isolation of Russia due to its illegal war on Ukraine all speak to this. Tell me, are we seeing the reversal of the world order brought about by 9 November, 1989? And how can this momentous day help explain the current moment of disorder in Europe? Timothy, could I ask your views first, please? Well, first of all, Mabel, it's great to be with you all to celebrate this 15th anniversary and to see Mabel's Kitchen taking its place in world history. Um, I've just finished writing a history of contemporary Europe, which I see as covering two periods, a post-war period, post-1945, and the post-wall period, i.e. the period since 9th November 1989, and I think one can well argue that actually that period comes to an end on the 24th of February this year. 
with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And um, of course, ECFR was born at the high point of optimism of the post-war period, when we believed that the spread, the peaceful spread of freedom and democracy was somehow the way history was going. It was a process. And the mistake we made was to take what happened in 1989 and in the subsequent years, which was actually a one in a million example of historical luck, and to start to see it as a linear process. Um, history with a small H is turned into history with a capital H, a Hegelian process. Whereas in fact, 2007, I would say, is the beginning of the end of the post-war period. It's the beginning of the accumulation of crises in Europe, starting 2008 global financial crisis and the invasion of Georgia, Eurozone crisis, refugee crisis, Ukraine crisis, Brexit, Trump, Poland, Hungary, COVID, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So that for the whole of our history as ECFR, we have actually been swimming against the tide. Yvonne, do you share that feeling? Have you been swimming against the tide? No, I, I very much agree with Tim because in a certain way, uh, we picked the last optimistic momentum, 2007. Lehman Brothers was still around. Uh, the Russians troop were out of Georgia. Uh, and we try basically to believe that we know how the future is going to look like. And I'm always tempted uh, to quote uh, Thomas Bagger, the German diplomat who is now the German ambassador in Warsaw, who used to say how it happened that in 1989, as a result of happening something that we did not expect, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we got the illusion that we know what is going to happen in the future. So in, in an important way, uh, I do believe we have been living with what Tim was saying, with a very strong idea that we know how the future is going to look like. And we were very much basically uh, in the business of trying to help the future to happen sooner. Uh, and from this point of view, of course, we are seeing a totally different situation now. And this total situation, part of it, it has roots in our illusions of what was there. It was the result of the fact that Europe very much tried to universalize its own experience and kind of not seeing other things happening in the world even before 2007. But from the other point of view, 2007 was a great place to start the European Council on Foreign Relations because before it was history with the capital H that was guiding Europe. There was a need kind of for Europe to find its place with a much more serious debate exactly after 2007, when many things that we perceived as European universalism turns to be very much European exceptionalism. Mark, can I ask your views? Yeah, I mean, I have the danger of, of being boring. I couldn't agree more with the, the other two speakers. I think what makes this particularly poignant, actually, is that what we're now realizing is that all the things that were meant to be bringing us together, which were the source of our optimism in 1989, have ended up being the things which are now dividing us and creating tension in the world. So we've gone from seeing the internet as a, something which would create a kind of global village and a demos to being something that polarizes and fragments our societies and fosters hatred and identity politics. We've gone from seeing trade as something which could uh, make war irrational and impossible. And it, we're now seeing it turn into the, the central battleground on which countries are, are hurting each other with sanctions and energy cutoffs. 
and other kinds of things. And even things like climate change, we're just sitting uh, watching the COP take place, are being gamed out by different countries who want to get ahead in the world and, and hold other people back. And the talk is all about reparations and protectionism and other things like that, rather than solving global problems. And I think that's the kind of biggest tragedy for Europeans, because Europeans believe more than anything else that history was history was going to be powered by these forces of integration. And they're now creating disintegration and leading to this sense of European exceptionalism, which Ivan talked about. And what we're seeing is that our project for ordering the world is coming up against other projects rather than being universalized. It's clashing with a, with a Russian uh, idea about how order should work, a Chinese order. And the, the, as the world becomes more multipolar, there's more and more pushback and more and more different ideas about what global order should look like. And rather than this sort of postmodern cosmopolitan project which European, which European Union stands for, we're seeing more kind of pre-modern civilizational projects which don't respect sovereignty as well as ultranationalism from other parts of the world. So Mark, uh, before we turn to looking at what, what this new world, this more multipolar world, what these new realities mean for ECFR in, in the coming years, let us for a moment look back at what ECFR has achieved and done so far. And I remember that in 2007, we set out with very ambitious goals to help European policymakers to address weaknesses, division, and denial. And, and if you look at this, and I will also ask Yvonne and, and Timothy, if you look at this, what has ECFR's role actually been in helping Europe find a strong and united voice? And given that you have led ECFR so, so wonderfully over the last 15 years, what are some of the examples you would like to share about how ECFR has been framing the debate has been developing policy and has been mobilizing pro-European forces. Maybe just mention three. I mean, when we started in 2007, our first report was a power audit of EU-Russia relations. And we said that Russia was in danger of splitting Europeans even more dramatically than, than Donald Rumsfeld had when he divided Europe into old and, and new parts. And that report was centered on the idea of asymmetrical interdependence. And we looked at the energy uh, situation as a kind of symptom of a, of, a, of a problem with the way that the Europeans were looking at the world. And that was then followed up with power audits on uh, China and on other parts of the world. So I think that was one important intellectual contribution where we were talking about moving from unconditional engagement to ideas of reciprocal engagement on China, on Russia, on other parts of the world. Secondly, I think we, we have... Uh, done a lot of work on the idea of connectivity wars and looking at how interdependence has been weaponized and, and what that means for Europeans and how we can become more sovereign over our affairs and broaden the idea of what foreign policy looks like. And then maybe a third thing is, is just trying to help Europeans understand a bit more what the world looks like in different areas and to think about what different ordering projects could look like. So in the Middle East, our colleagues have done a lot of work on trying to de-escalate it, thinking about how you could use the Iran nuclear deal to change the dynamics in the region. When it comes to wider Europe, colleagues were very quick to, to spot the, the problems with the, the European neighbourhood policy and to think about different bits. Niku Popescu is now the Deputy Prime Minister of Moldova, worked on a really important project on security compacts, looking at how we could strengthen our neighbours. I can't help but think that if we built some of these security compacts and done some of the other things in the neighbourhood, we might not be sitting where we are uh, today. But there are lots of other parts of ECFR which have done amazing work, uh, but maybe just stop with those, those three. 
Well, Yvonne, um, let me ask you, what, looking back at the work that the CFR has done, what makes you most pride? Where do you think the biggest impact has been made? Listen, it's always kind of natural to try to see every one of us and our organization of being more important than we normally are. But in my view, there was uh, three or four things that make the uh, ECFR distinctive from different types of efforts, basically to try to see how Europe is going to shape the world, because this was what was the idea, how Europe is going to shape the world. And this is quite important because where ECFR started from, and it was very different from many others, was that we understand the centrality of the member states. It was Europe-centered, but it was not a Brussels-centered project. Secondly, in my view, we understand the importance of the domestic politics. Normally, when basically people are doing foreign policy, they try to believe that domestic policy does not matter so much, particularly when you have the European Union as a kind of a very particular international actor. And I do believe in the work of the ECFR, it was critically important that we were quite open to try to see how the dynamics, for example, the rise of populism in certain parts of European Union are transforming European foreign policy, are transforming the role of the Europe in the world. But the certain, for me, the most important contribution to uh, of the ECFR was we were, in my view, brave enough and honest enough to be ready to critically examine some of the assumptions with which we have been working. This is not that basically we have been right all the time or even most of the time, but I do believe we have been allowing the changing situation in the world and in Europe also to change our perspective. And as we know, this is not easy. Uh, and from this point of view, this readiness of the ECFR to question some of the basic assumptions on which we started working, I find as one of the most important things that we have achieved. Timothy, what would you like to add there? Yeah, well, as Ivan said, there's always a danger in all organizations of self-congratulation. So I think it's really important to say that we are nowhere near where we hope to get when we started out in 2007. I think that's really important to say. We wanted to have an effective, coherent, united European foreign policy, external policy, to be one of the great powers in the world, speaking with one voice. We're a long, long way away from that for the simple reason which we all gave at the beginning, that we have been swimming against a very powerful tide for the last 15 years. So I think the balance sheet is quite sobering, actually. But what I would add to what uh, Mark and Ivan said on our, on our achievements, I think we have made a major contribution to creating a genuine strategic culture in Europe. Across the continent, there's a shared analysis, not just between think tanks and you know, foreign policy elites, but, but the other thing we've done is to penetrate quite deep international debates, which, is, which of course are conducted in individual national languages. So we're actually there in the national media advancing at least a similar analysis of the problem, even if governments end up in different places at the end. Let us look ahead what all this means, both for Europe as well as for, for ECFR. And, you know, 9 November, the fall of the Berlin Wall also marked a day of power rebalancing in Europe. And we saw that after 1989, a reunified Germany was able to slowly emerge as an actor on the geopolitical stage again. What do you think we will see 
after the war in Ukraine. Will we see a similar rebalancing act? Yvonne, would you like to, to respond to this first? Yeah, first, of course, it's very important when the war is going to end and how it will end. Uh, but uh, there are two things that I find uh, particularly important in this situation when I'm looking at Europe. One is, uh, first of all, Europe uh, is going to change, I mean, geographically. And this is one of the major things, because any type of a security guarantees that can be given to Ukraine after the war is over will mean the Ukraine in one way or the other is going to be part of the European Union. We don't know institutionally how this is going to be arranged, but you cannot have any type of a meaningful end of the war without this, which means that suddenly Europe is going to move dramatically to the east. And this kind of a movement is critically important because it is going to bring different history, different sensitivities. And in the way the German-French relations were so important for basically building Europe in the way it was till 1989, in my view, the relations between Germany and Poland particularly in the next five, 10 years are going to have the same important uh, uh, outcome. And here the tensions between the idea of the geopolitical Europe and the rule of law Europe is going to be very strong. And we are seeing it already. And I do believe this is something that is very important. When it comes to the international order, uh, before there was a European order, which was very different than international order. And this European security order basically was murdered on uh, February 24, or as uh, German President Steinmeier, uh, in my view, uh, very powerfully said in a recent speech, it is not that President Putin basically simply break the rules uh, or end the game. He throw the board on uh, the cast uh, on the floor. Uh, and from this point of view, we're entering in a world in which this type of specific European security order is not there anymore. I'm not one of the persons who believe that we are going to be back to a Cold War in the way we knew it. The relations and competitions between the United States and China for sure are going to stay. But what I see much more, and uh, this is uh, my my last point, I imagine the next decade and the next two decades very much being marked by the rise of the middle powers and the middle power activism. Countries like Turkey, but also Saudi Arabia, but India, but Brazil, they'll try to find their place in a very much fragmented world. And they're going to do very different things. And some of the things are probably going to be constructive and some of the things could be very much destructive, but it is going to be the activism of the middle powers that in my view, more than simply confrontation between China and the United States, that is going to shape the international order and how Europe is going to find its place in this world, how, how Europe is going to redefine itself basically as one level a middle power of its own, and on the other, the middle power that is very much in special relations with the United States. This is going to be, in my view, a very, very important task and very different than the one we have been discussing when uh, the project started. Timothy, when the project started, your country, the United Kingdom, was part of the EU. You're now um, independent. Um, how are you looking at, at this whole question of rebalancing from where you sit? Well, I'm, I'm certainly not looking at it as a typical Brit, I can tell you. I'm looking at it as, as an English European. T two things. First of all, Ukraine's extraordinary resistance to Putin's invasion has given us a really dramatic new agenda for the European Union, which is a new agenda of enlargement, not just to the Western Balkans, but to Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova. And that's a task for 20 to 30 years. It, it's like the, the strategic task we set out on at the beginning of the 1990s, 
and it necessarily requires, as Olaf Scholz has said, more deepening, more qualified majority voting. So there's a whole, I find very exciting new strategic agenda for transforming the European Union, which if we succeed would enable it to become a much more effective foreign policy actor, uh, but it's a big challenge. The second thing to say is we're in the middle of an even larger historical process than the ones we talked about at the beginning, namely the end of a 200 year ascendancy of the West and um, 600 years of European colonial history. So that um, when you look at the way democracies like India and South Africa and Brazil have positioned themselves on the Ukraine war, not aligning with the West, you see uh, a taste of the future. And that's about a changing world order in which non-Western great powers and middle powers will increasingly be calling the shots and other democracies will be adjusting to that. And I think that's something that's a big challenge for us to, to adapt to that new world of competing great powers, which in many ways, you know, when we set out, we believe the world might resemble Europe in the late, uh, at the end of the 20th century. In many ways, the world is gonna resemble Europe at the end of the 19th century, a world of competing great powers. Mark, would you like to come in as well? I think that all of that is, is true, but I think it's gonna be quite different from the world at the end of the 19th century, just because this level of interdependence and interpenetration, which the digital revolution, which our supply chains have produced is quite transformative. And even though it will be selectively decoupled, and I think it, it's right to think that we're gonna have more fragmentation and debates about friendshoring and other kinds of uh, reordering projects are going to be part of, of, of what happens. Um, we're going to be in a period of, of sort of profound chaos for quite a long time, um, and we'll probably not have some of the the, the predictability that that you had in the nineteenth century when you could have a more stable balance of power. Because I think the two elements of of order which Henry Kissinger talks about are a kind of balance of power and, and the legitimacy of that order, and I think both are being blown apart by that historical shift that Tim was talking about. The the kind of multipolar world means that our ideas and our concepts are no longer seen as legitimate in large parts of the world, simply because they're ours. And that is a, a kind of structural problem for, for, for Europeans as other people want to shape their own future and decolonization becomes a much more powerful force than adhering to liberal democracy uh, or authoritarianism. And then the second thing is that some of these ideas which people are, having, uh, are coming out with are, are sort of profoundly destabilizing. So a lot of the big powers think of themselves as civilization states rather than nation states, um, which is something which is inherently uh, destabilizing. We've seen it in the Middle East for the last few years where the Iranians and the Saudis have developed their own versions of the responsibility to protect, looking after Shia and Sunni in different countries. And that's led to, to proxy wars and, and violence. Um, we're now seeing uh, what the idea of the civilization state means in, in Eastern Europe, which has uh, been terrifying and profoundly destabilizing for all of our ideas of order. And um, uh, but China and India um, have also got very different ideas of order. So I, I think it's going to be a really chaotic and, and dangerous situation, maybe not with, with uh, just conventional wars, but the weaponization of everything else. I think that is more disturbing for, for Europeans because we have a sense 
unlike many people in Africa, in Asia and post-colonial places, of our power ebbing away, our ability to control what's going on in the world ebbing away. And that's quite different from places like China and India that feel challenged by the big global uh, trends, but they feel more in control than they have done for a long time and have more agency than they've had in the past. Let me uh, finish this podcast by asking all of you a question about where you hope that Europe will be in the wider world in 10 years time. And looking ahead, what you think that will mean in terms of the areas that ECFR will have to focus on in this coming decade. Let me start with asking Timothy, please. Just first of all, to what Mark just said, it is worth just noting that the late 19th century balance of power celebrated by Henry Kissinger didn't end that well either. <laughs> uh, um, I, I hope, I, I'm looking forward very much to our, our 25th anniversary meeting in Kiev in an EU member state uh, shaping European foreign policy because that would be the end of the Russian Europe and the, the Russian Empire and therefore we would in effect be for the first time arguably ever in a post-imperial Europe so that would be a great um, a great achievement but beyond that um, I, my greatest hope I don't know that if it's realistic or not but my greatest hope would be that Europe would be a significant pole of a genuinely multipolar world, but a multipolar world which had actually agreed some minimal rules of the game, which is not where we are at the moment. Ivan, what do you think? First, Mabel, I uh, hope that uh, the next meeting is also going to be connected in one way or the other to your kitchen. Of course, one of the major questions is going to be what is going to have on the table in the kitchen, because some of the major economic questions are going to uh, go after us. Uh, but uh, where I'm very much following both uh, uh, Tim and Mark is that we have a major also conceptual transition. And this is Europe for the last 30 years was very much living in the framework of the Cold War is a post-Cold War order. Our references were there. And also the World War II to a certain extent. One of the important things that happened with uh, the Russia's war on Ukraine is that basically the common references to the World War II that have been the only narrative that basically East and West were sharing for these 50 years is now that in a certain way. It was instrumentalized to the way that this is not a common language anymore between Russia and the West. And we're going to see, in my view, something that very much resembles the rise of the identity politics on a global level. The major question is how to force others to view you in the way you are viewing yourself. Uh, and as a result of it for Europe, it's going to be a very difficult task to make this political identity for itself. Uh, which is not going simply to be uh, kind of confined to institutions, but it is basically really going to be about who we are in the international politics and particularly the international politics in which the narrative of decolonization is going to be much stronger than the narrative of the Cold War. Uh, and this is not an easy task. And from this point of view, it's not simply about policies. This is also the language with which we are justifying different policies. Uh, and I do believe that ECFR has a lot to contribute to this. Mark, can I ask you your views on the coming 10 years? Yeah, I think there's sort of four big challenges. The first is about sort of politicization, how you can actually explain uh, the, the benefits of the EU 
to the large numbers of people who felt that they've been left behind and who are kind of rebel rebelling and revolting um, in a kind of national political settlement. Secondly, I think is kind of integration. I think we've seen how weak we are in the world with uh, without having uh, proper defense policies, without having proper energy markets, um, without having proper ways of dealing with migration. Um, I think thirdly, it's about transformation. It's about rather than trying to defend the status quo, trying to, to reshape our own institutions, the own relationships, and a bigger EU is not just going to have more member states. I think it's going to have to work in a fundamentally different way. And I think the final and maybe the biggest challenge is one about deprovincialization. I think uh, the big danger is that we become more and more solipsistic as we go into this kind of dangerous world. But whether it's dealing with energy policy, whether it's looking at the second order effects of, of sanctions and the way that we create a food crisis and uh, other economic crises around the world, we need to get much more curious about how the rest of the world looks at things and be much less Eurocentric if we really want to have influence in the 21st century. Dear Yvonne, Mark and Timothy, um, thanks for your very thoughtful um, remarks on, about the last 15 years and about where we're heading. It sounds like the European Council for Relations had its job cut out for it and that we will have plenty to do. But I'm delighted that with the community of council members and all the rich thinking and all the, the, the influence that we have, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will uh, be able to to contribute to to the debates and or to the decision making that needs to happen. I remember when it all started thinking about this is not just about us trying to influence the European Union now. This is about the future of my children and the children of of all of us. Um, and I suspect we still have a lot of work to do there. Now, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your own social media channels or on the ECFR social media channels. And above all, hopefully, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. For now, from Mark Leonard, Ivan Krustev, Timothy Gardenesh, and myself, Mabel van Oranje, it is goodbye. The researcher of this special podcast episode is Sarah Brown, and the producer is Marlene Riedel. Mm -hmm.